0: Thanks, Dennis. I'm Roger. I'm an alcoholic. Those have become about the five most beautiful words in my life. Uh, You know, I I want to tell you some things I love about AA. That when they start out, they say, let's have a moment of silence for the alcoholic that still suffers. That is so considerate, you know, because that poor guy's got such a hangover. You know, just give him a little bit of a break before you start. You know, I think I think that's real charity. Uh, and uh, the other thing, oh, my sobriety date, by the way, we'll get this out of the way right away, is uh, the 17th of July, 1975. And that's round of applause is for you, because I just kind of rode along with this thing. Um
1: uh,
0: we opened the squeaking door to tonight's mystery. You'd have to be pretty old to understand that. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, my drinking career, well, my life started at the end of the Madison streetcar line in Chicago. If you're good at accents, you've already figured that out. Uh, and by the way, as a good West Side Irishman, imagine the likes of us doing this on Patty's Day weekend. <laughs> so... Uh, our standard among the West Side Irish of how much is too much was a very, very liberal one. And I was not able to stay down to it. That's one of the reasons I think I might have a drinking problem. That uh, actually, Madison Street, if you know the city at all, Madison Street, the east end of it was Skid Row. It's Yuppieville now, but it used to be a real scroungy Skid Row, Halstead and Madison. And they get on the streetcar, these, these, what I used to call, I used to joke and say these were homeless persons with a substance problem in today's parlance, and in those days we called them bums. Actually, actually, the, the, the reality is that these were people who were dying of this disease. And they'd get on the streetcar down at Halstead Street, right at downtown, back out to Austin Boulevard, which is the end of the line. If they had another dime, they'd get back on the streetcar and they could stay warm for another hour and a half, two hours. If they didn't have another dime and if the conductor wasn't sympathetic, I would pass some of them dying of alcoholism in the doorways on Madison Street on the way to school in the morning. And until I got to this program, I didn't end up in one of those doorways. And that's purely by the grace of God. Uh, But nevertheless, until the 17th of July, 1975, I was dying of alcoholism. And the way I started dying was very simple. Uh, I am a third-generation alcoholic that I know of. My sons are fourth-generation. That My father, in 1955, died of alcoholism, which was rather unusual on the death certificate. What he had was a, a uh, the death certificate reads CBA, cerebrovascular accident, medical term for a stroke. Uh, portal block, which is a medical term that means his liver plugged up, which is what raised the blood pressure. Chronic alcoholism. It was a good Dr. Whaley that signed that, good Irish doctor. And, uh, in about 1960, Whaley died of a esophageal aneurysm, which is also almost invariably an alcoholic death. Uh, but he was one that could communicate with my father and was treating him. My father had gone to, uh, he had gone to Mayo Clinic and they told him to quit drinking, so he never went back there. My father was a, he was a traveling salesman in the pharmaceutical business. There was a doctor in St. Louis that told him to quit drinking, so he never went back there. And, uh, apparently Whaley didn't tell him to quit drinking, so that was his doctor. Uh, he ended up at a hospital in 1954 and wondered why he was in the psych ward. Uh, my sister at the time, who by the way just celebrated 31 years of sobriety, uh, my sister was dating a fellow by the name of Clem Lane. Now, you gotta go way back for this. But there was, or, uh, John Lane. Clem Lane was his father. Clem Lane had been city editor of the Chicago Daily News. And he had gotten sober about 1940, from what I understand. One of the very first, one of the first 200, anyway. And Clem Lane had tried to 12-step my father, and I remember my father in 54 saying, I'll show that Clem Lane, I can do this on my own. So this is is the start of my drinking career. My father taught me how to drink. Uh, I ended up... Most people's drinking career is a downward spiral. Mine isn't exactly that way. Oh, uh, I should add, by the way, that in this alcoholic home, I was very much under my mother's thumb. And so I figured out a way to get out from under that. That uh one of the ways that an Irish kid gets out from under his mother's thumb is to go to the seminary. <laughs> And so I started my high school career in a school called Quigley Preparatory Seminary in Chicago. Uh they uh the priests there were it was all taught by priests. They were all trained by Jesuits, so I'm a Jesuit trained agnostic. Uh they uh and I I recently realized something. I had we had a fiftieth class reunion and one of the priests one of the still a priest out of that, about half of them have left the priesthood for one reason or another. And there's no uh, there's no stigma attached to that. We're all friends as we were 50 years ago. But uh, the fact is that he had written in his little bio for this thing that that he had had a problem with alcohol 20 years ago. I didn't read this right away, so I wrote him a letter and I said, Jerry, if we had, uh, I wish I had known this ahead of time because we would have had much to talk about. I told him I was 28 years sober at the time, and he says, uh, but but I also wrote something in that letter that was very revealing. What I wrote was that the thing that got me into that seminary was a desire to carry a message like this. The thing that made me not belong in that seminary is that I had absolutely no spirituality whatsoever. I had gone after four years, I'd gone away to study for the Dominican Order, Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa. And these, the Dominicans are paying my tuition at the end of the first year. They decided that it would be nice if they if I would join a little organization that they called the Third Order of St. Dominic, in which you make a commitment that you are going to do some prayers every day, probably, as I recall it, uh, probably nothing more complicated than what we do in our daily reflection book, or the Hazelden horoscope, or whatever your choice is for daily reading. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> I, I was hit with this and I said, I'm not going to make this kind of a commitment. Here I am, I'm supposed to be becoming a priest with these guys and I'm not going to make that spiritual commitment. No spirituality whatsoever. But I could drink. In fact, the director of vocations when we got talking about, they were showing us movies and stuff that we did and I was all very interested in the, in the beer supply. He says, you've heard of a rice Christian? I said, yeah. He says, I think you're a beer Dominican. And, and he was right. He was right. So I went on and... uh left the uh the studies for the priesthood and and uh, i another thing one of the things that i benefited from in the seminary is that i was able to get through puberty without the complication of women in my life <laughs> uh, but i i came out of i came out of school i was not, i had resigned from them about a month later uh i'm working at marshall fields in oak park illinois and uh i come up the uh i come up into the into the uh lunchroom all my girlfriends had gone away to school and i come up into the lunchroom and here is this young lady sitting there that i'd known from grade school i just didn't know her name and i sat down hi how are you how you been you know what have you been up to and i sit down and we have our little ice cream or whatever it was that we had and uh, then i went to the timesheet sheet to find out what her name was and uh, we went out we went on our first date on the 28th of september 1953 and if we got hanging around with her girlfriends because all my buddies were in the seminary so they weren't hanging around with anybody and uh we went up to uh well at least not that they were willing to tell anybody about <laughs> but uh so we went up there was a place up uh north of chicago on dundee road Isn't actually in dundee i think it's in northbrook uh it's called the country fair and she says we can get served at the country fair yeah because i was just a beer drinker at that point it's, the director of vocations had pointed out to me. Uh, and I said, uh, she says, you can get started. She says, I like a seven and seven. Why don't you try one? And I tried one and I realized that this was going to be the love of my life. <laughs> and and so it was. And so it was because that lady hung with me. We we're still married. Uh, we got married in 1956. A lot of people in, in AA talk about relationships. I can't talk about relationships because they weren't invented until sometime in the
1: 60s.
0: (laughs) If I had one, she'd shoot both of us. But anyway, uh, we uh, we got married and I went to work for a uh, pharmaceutical company. I didn't quite finish college. I'm an alcoholic. I never quite finished anything. You know, an, an alcoholic is somebody that goes off in two equal and opposite directions and almost makes both of them. <laughs> but anyway, uh I went to work for a drug company and uh they had a policy that you weren't supposed to drink at lunch. And that was cool with me. I don't think in the seven years I was with them, I don't I think I may have violated it once or twice, had a beer at lunch. Uh What I was doing beyond that, though, there's there's a little catch that comes into this. I was probably I wasn't drinking a whole lot. The only time when I was obviously powerless over alcohol is when somebody else was buying. <laughs> I remember, I remember a sales meeting with them. It was at a the the most of you have heard of the Drake Hotel in Chicago. Well, there was a motel in Oakbrook, Illinois, that they called the Drake Oakbrook, and everybody had sales meetings there, and all the salesmen called it the Donald Duck. But uh, I was it was out there that. uh I got a little bit of a, of a gastric upset. I used to get a lot of gastric upsets that, uh, uh, today, I guess in those days they'd say I was a puking drunk, but today we have to be very politically correct. Uh, so, so I, I, I went into the men's room with a gastric upset and was, was, was kneeling before the bowl. And uh actually jettisoning the toxic substance that was causing my gastric upset. And all of a sudden, it was my first experience of serenity. This very peaceful feeling came over me, and I just went like this. <laughs> and it was a long time before I had any other serenity after that. That was in about... Well, let's see, I left that company in 1964, so it would have been around that era sometime. And then I, I got myself a traveling job. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of the towns that I traveled when I still lived in Chicago was a little, a little burg in South Dakota called Sioux Falls. And, uh, the only place, see, I remember drinking at the Holiday Inn here. And, uh, Ah, oh, well, who remembers anyway? But anyway, <laughs> I was, I had, I had tippled a few here in Sioux Falls and in Omaha and in Des Moines and, uh, uh, almost got myself killed in Green Lake, Wisconsin, south of Green Bay in 1966 for suggesting that Dick Butkus had won the championship for Green Bay. That <laughs> uh, I was not a discreet drunk either. I wonder how I survived it. At any rate, things went along and when I, oh, and when I got the traveling job, by the way, they didn't care if we drank at lunch. Well, one of the things I was living in Palatine, Illinois, at the time, and I used to commute to Milwaukee to work there. And I think one of the, the milestones of my alcoholism is that I went up to Milwaukee to work, and I went to lunch and had a couple of what made Milwaukee famous, and never went back to work in the afternoon because I was too drunk. Now, I wasn't too drunk to drive back to Palatine, but I was too drunk to go back to work. That, uh, and you know, there's there's some truth in that. Uh, if you ever watch Father Martin, uh. Father Martin will tell you that alcohol is selective in the alcoholic. And I believe this because it would take out my sanity, but it would not take out my motor coordination. I never had an accident drinking. I never had a DWI. I should have had a few. I remember the Scottsdale police one time that, uh, this was in 1970 that, uh, they, they had me standing on a street corner. I was with all of our, all my drinking buddies were down, were out on, uh, Central Avenue and we we're going out to Scottsdale to continue the process. And I got nailed for driving on the wrong side of a highway. I didn't know they had finished the work on Scottsdale Road, so I turned short. It was a two lane and it opened a four. Anyway, make a long story short. Cop has me standing like this. My buddies come by and ow ho ho the night of the crane. Remember the one they had? Wild Wild West was a big thing then. And uh, they, the guy told me, he says, you, you have any more to drink tonight and you're going to end up in jail. And I went home. So I didn't get one then. I remember throwing a left turn at Chicago Avenue in Michigan. I had worked with. I've been uh, I've been active in music most of my life, and I was a, a singer with the Lake Shore Club of Chicago. They gave out free memberships if you sang in their chorus. So I'm coming home from one of their parties in a tuxedo, and I make a left turn at Chicago Avenue in Michigan, right by the water tower. If there's one no left turn sign on that corner, there's fifty. And the cop pulls me over, and the first if you get stopped in Chicago, the first thing you do is wave the cross. You let them know you're an Irish Catholic, and then you go from there. So at least that's the way it was then. And uh the guy saw I says, I went to school right in the corner here. I went to Quigley and I went to Loyola. And he says, yeah, and if you hadn't had a couple, I'll bet you would have made the left turn, too. I shut up. <laughs> I shut up. It didn't take out all my sanity. I had one spell swoop, But at any rate, those were a couple that I should have had. Uh, also, a lot of people end their drinking careers in jail. I began mine in jail. We were at a place called the Casa Luna, and it was sort of an under-21 club. Sort of like that. then my this this chick was a terrible corrupting influence. In fact she almost got hers for this one. Because in those days the rule in Illinois was uh twenty one for guys and eighteen for girls. And we were at the Castellona and it got raided. And the result was that she was gonna we put all the drinks in front of her. And <laughs> <laughs> she was legal. And listen, the guy that I was with was an Italian kid and the girl that he was with was an Italian girl and I think her father was connected. We boosted her out the window. She was 17. They put her out the window of the ladies room. She didn't get caught. He'd have had a concrete kayak in the Des Plaines River, I think, if she'd have got busted. But anyway, uh, we got, what happened is that they, they hauled me and Gino in, and, uh, my father was still alive at the time, and, uh, but uh, So I, I end up in the Craig and lockup. Well, we had $30 between us, the bond was 25 and Gino had the car, so we bailed him out. Then he went to my house and got my bail from my dad. No consequences, Very right? Ho, 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 you know, funny, funny, funny. It began to get a little less funny when uh, some of the stuff that, oh, the, the, some of my pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Uh, I was at a sales meeting up at a place called The Wagon Wheel up near Beloit, Wisconsin. And we had roommates and I was getting a gastric upset. <laughs> and so I leaned over the edge of the bed and barked in my roommate's slippers. <laughs> you know, this is this professional salesman, this yuppie going to work in a suit driving a new Ford company cock. Yes, doctor. Oh, doctor, have you tried this doctor and do you know this doctor and that? Blah, you know. But anyway, uh, this is, this is what you can see I'm beginning to slip a little bit. And then, all right, I'm on the road. I'm I'm finding that I'm bleeding to death at the eyeballs. And I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm supposed to be out there working and getting up at 9 o'clock or getting up at, at you know, getting to work at 9 o'clock. And here it is, 11 o'clock, and I'm rolling out of bed, bleeding to death at the eyeballs, looking in the mirror and saying, you bum, you know, what? how can you do this? I'm not going to do this anymore. And guess where I am at 5 o'clock. And 5 o'clock can come at 3.30, too. You know how it is on the road. It gets long. And... Uh, uh, Shakespeare has a line about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And that's my drunk a basically. This is the way it went. I'm very slowly deteriorating. I got transferred to Denver, which really, uh, was a boost because, uh, with a higher altitude you can get drunk a lot cheaper. Uh, <laughs> they, uh and, uh, and I'm still on the road. I'm traveling all over the West. And the drinking's getting worse. Uh, I have, uh, and uh the, the resolutions are getting worse. I'm drinking more and more and more. And I got off the road in 1974. Uh, I was hired by a guy that was a manufacturer's rep. In fact, he had a, a company that he repped here in Sioux Falls by the name of Modern Label. And the guys from Modern Label took me out to lunch at the Holiday Inn. And somehow a rumor got started that I had a drinking problem. As a result of that lunch, I'll bet you those guys ratted me out. You know, and also another one somewhere in Wisconsin that they took me to lunch and I think they ratted me out too. But, uh, I got sober before I got fired. The way I got sober is kind of peculiar. I mentioned about my music. Uh, I was director of, I searched the whole world over for a faith I could believe in. And I found this church in Denver, St. Thomas More, had a liquor license. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: that made, that not only when they get, when they, when this place opened up, they not only made headlines in the Rocky Mountain News. They made the Chicago Tribune with it. But anyway, uh, I took and, and uh, I was director of music for them. And in the spring of 75, Raw Memorial Day, as I recall. Well, let me, let me back up a little bit because the first thing that happened is that my sister got into AA. And my sister, well, she was, she was a Kennedy Democrat and a John Bircher at the same time. And and nobody nobody was real surprised when Peggy joined AA because Peggy joined everything. <laughs> so it's nineteen seventy-three. She comes to Denver in the springtime and I take her to a meeting. Uh and I'm looking around and I'm looking at this this group and thinking, gee, these are nice people. Too bad they can't drink. <laughs> so then our mother got sick that fall and she lived in Forest Park, Illinois. We were in her apartment and we went to the club there. And they took one look at me and decided that maybe they'd let me sit in a closed meeting. That they apparently figured out something I couldn't. I was following her around, you know. But she would eat, sleep, think, talk, nothing but AA. So this was the second thing I was exposed to AA again in a couple of meetings when we were in Chicago. In, uh, 1975, they had a AA convention in Denver. And she and her then boyfriend came to, uh, uh, they came to Denver for the convention and to make a long story short, I got crucified between two thieves. That What, what actually happened... And it, we, I took him to my favorite watering hole. Oh, and you know, most people go from good joints to scroungy joints. I went the other way, from scroungy joints to a pretty nice place. And uh, the bartender there called my future brother-in-law aside and said, Can't you do anything for this guy? He's killing himself. Because I was sitting there and I wasn't blessed with a lot of blackouts. Actually, none that I remember. Uh, but the... Uh, uh, I remember one one noon I walked in. I never drank in the morning. Only alcoholics did that. Uh it was always noon in Honolulu by the time I got started. But uh I went into this place and and my my standard lunch and, I, and you know you got to be cute about your drinking, right? I remember my father lines like the La bird can't fly with one wing or a little poem that he used to have about he is not drunk who from the floor can rise again to drink some more. But he is drunk, who prostrate lies, and cannot drink, and cannot rise. And all kinds of stuff like this. Okay, and I used to call the the martinis, they served a five-ounce double martini. Uh And uh, I used to call it Mama Puglisi's olive soup. And that was what I would have for lunch. Well, I mean, I was reaching the point where I wasn't getting anything done in the morning because I wasn't getting up, and I wasn't feeling too well, and... uh And then in the evening, and then in the afternoon, I wasn't getting much done either because of that soap. And anyway, it disagreed with me in some ways. But I remember that on the first of the year, 1975, I was going to quit drinking. I lasted two days. And on the, about the 3rd of January, probably, I went into the place where I drank. And I think I set my record. I had seven double martinis and I think about 20 cans of beer. So I mean, this was, you know, this enormous pack, and and I drove home from that, and it didn't give me a gastric upset, as I recall, not that I recall it all that well. Okay, so this is going on. Well, now I'm I'm director of music in this church, and the kids, one of whom is my son, who is now 12 years clean in N.A., he's fourth generation. Uh, they're trying to get their show together, and they asked me to help them out because they just weren't getting their show together. So yeah. I gave him a hand with it, and this gal that's putting it on, her name is uh, D. She goes over to a convent in Littleton. This, I'm in Denver by this time. She goes over to a convent in Littleton, and she says to this nun over there, she says, "I got a good friend." This is oh, this is one of these convents where all they ever do is pray. They don't do teaching. They don't do nursing. They're just contemplative. They're like monks. And uh, she says, "I got a good friend. His name is Roger. He's a good guy, but he's an awful drunk pray for him. So I have no idea this. I found it out two years later." So I'm going along my merry way and I mentioned the scene at the uh, uh at the convention there and I was asking my future brother-in-law a lot of leading questions and getting answers and so on. I let it cook for a couple of couple of weeks and I come home this one night and I think I had five double martinis that night and the usual cans of beer. And uh, I come home and I know I blacked out the fight that we had and my wife says, "Why are you doing this to me? To yourself and to the kids?" Instead of the smart answers that I had ready, I said, I'm an alcoholic. And she says, go to AA. Now, we've we have a, we've had an Al-Anon speaker, and you know how desperate Al-Anons get. She was so desperate, she actually circled Al-Anon in the phone book, which I took great offense at, but I didn't find out. I would have taken great offense, but I didn't find out about it for another couple of months. So I didn't realize she had circled that. I was looking for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I saw her with a circle around Al-Anon. I mean, boy, how could she do that to me? They... But anyway, uh, Al-Anons are not supposed to diagnose the husband as alcoholic. You all know that. But anyway, I happen to be an Al-Anon, so uh, we can go with this. An aside, we went down to the springtime in the Ozarks convention at uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, a few years ago. And uh, there's an expression that I picked up in Rapid City, as a matter of fact, that describes people who belong to both fellowships. A lot of places call us double winners. They call us drunken butterflies. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and I, I, I brought that up at the Al-Anon meeting at the convention, and that was what they all hooked on to. I mean, I, I owe an amend for that, I think. But anyway, no, you do. It was from Rapid City. But anyway, uh, where was I? Ah, yes. So, I went, I went down to York Street, which is the mother house in AA, and uh, came in there as a borderline first-age alcoholic. And... Somebody explained to me, they had that, I don't know who the guy is, I want to say Jarko, but that's not his name, he's the guy with the artificial heart. But it's a a chart that shows the various progression down, and then there's a bottom and the progression up. And I came about halfway down the downside of the chart, and I said, this is where I am, and somebody pointed out to me, no, this is where you are, you're at the bottom. Which brings me to what is a bottom. People say, you haven't hit your bottom yet, what's a bottom? Okay, and what I, I want to, I want to qualify this before I get into this. What I am going to be sharing tonight is the only thing that I have to share. There is a book that's called Alcoholics Anonymous. That book has the instructions for working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the only thing I have to share is my experience in what I have done to work those 12 steps. If you want to find out the directions and if you want to find out what the book says, read the book. What I'm sharing is my experience of doing what the book says. So it starts out here that I get in there and I'm this borderline first-age alcoholic, according to the family afterward. And this guy points out that uh, I'm at the bottom. Because here's bottom. Bottom is defined, in my experience, in the big book. The part that we read, how it works, it says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, that's the bottom, because the bottom is the point where you stop going down and start going up. Okay, now, I told you about the guys in the doorways on Madison Street. The 17th of July, 1975, I stopped dying of alcoholism. I stopped dying. This is a life-and-death program. I am powerless over alcohol. Why? Because I couldn't stay down to the West Side Irish Standard. It gets worse than that. I couldn't stay away from the next drink. Without help, I still can't. But the reason why... I know that I'm an alcoholic. I was drunk when I wanted to be sober. I was drinking when I didn't want booze on my breath. I was drinking instead of doing what I wanted to do. One of the states I travel is Utah. The differential diagnosis of alcohol. If you can wait till Nevada, you're okay. They, uh, uh, but. But I was drinking instead of doing what I wanted to do. Alcohol was taking over my life. In 1969, one of my ex-priest friends was going to teach me how to play golf. Now, priests in the Archdiocese of Chicago are incredible golfers because they have this seminary in Mundelein, Illinois, with no women and and a golf course. So what do you think they do? Never mind. I don't want to get into that. (laughs) They... uh, Uh, They are incredible golfers. He was going to teach me how to play the game. I remember sitting in the bar in the Mayfair Hotel in Casper, Wyoming, making a decision that I was not going to put my beer money into golf clubs because what I did with my spare time is drink. So, to this day, I can't play golf. That's That's how alcohol was taking over my life. I had no say-so about whether I drink, when I drink, how much I drink, anything like this. And when that happens, I'm heading for a doorway on Madison Street. And I mentioned that my father died drunk and I figured when I got to AA I was about 10 years behind him. And then I got sober a little while and I realized I was about 5 years behind him. Do you know how far I was behind him? It was one drink. The next drink. And I got no say-so. The next drink and I'm going down that path. And I'm dying. 17th of July, 1975 I got this incredible feeling that something had dropped on me. Two years later I found out it was these gals praying for me. So... That's the day that I stopped dying of alcoholism. But it's a life and death program. So what about life? Well, in addition to being, you know, it's like the guy that goes to the doctor and the doctor says you're overweight. He says, I'd like a second opinion. He says, you're also ugly. Uh, (laughs) Drunk or sober, my life is unmanageable. We'll get into what that means in a minute here. But right at at the moment, I solved the death problem. Now, what am I going to do about the life side of it? Okay, my book says I've got to find a power that I can live by. It also goes farther and says we're going to find a great reality deep within ourselves. So I'm going to search deep within myself and see what I come up with. Well, the first thing I see is a collection of defects in search of a character. That's number one. You know, I'm very, very guilty. Very, very guilty. Fortunately, I learned from the United States Air Force, of all people, that I am not guilty. Because I have a disease. And the Air Force told me in a pre-flight briefing, they said, Sarge, if you throw up on this airplane, you will not get court-martialed, but you are going to have to clean up the airplane. And that is the difference between guilt and responsibility in my book. Okay, but this is my problem. I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable. Drunk or sober, I still can't get a life. It's like when I was drinking, I couldn't play the piano. Well, I still can't play the piano because I never could. And... That's funny when it comes to pianos, but it isn't always funny when it comes to life. I got, and of course, all kinds of weird ideas that I brought out of that alcoholic family. Uh, so, how are we doing? Oh, we're doing fine. Uh, we don't want to be late for the ice cream social. You know, there's four basic foods in this world. These are pie, ice cream, cookies, and cake. <laughs> they, uh... <laughs> I knew somebody would agree with me if I kept talking. <laughs> anyway... The, uh, uh, the unmanageability of my life, I just, nothing ever works for me. You take a combination lock. You can give me the combination, go left, go right, go left, go right, and I'll do it, I'll do it exactly according to directions, the damn thing won't open. So I'll hand you the lock and you say, flip, 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 see? Just like that. Click, now you try it. <laughs> and here we go again. And that's, that's the story of my life, basically. Book says I gotta find a power that I can live by. Book says I'm gonna find the great reality deep within myself. As you might have gathered, I was pretty holy. I mean, I was so holy I was shooting genuflections in theaters. You know, but, but, uh, I see we got some other right-handers in the room. That's good. Uh, what's nice guys like you doing a joint like this? Anyway, the, uh, the fact of the matter is that, that, uh, I don't know how to stay sober. For all my religious training, it means nothing, and of course I have no spirituality going at all. But the fact of the matter is, I've got, I'm gonna find the great reality deep within myself. That sounds so neat. That sounds so neat. That's so inspirational. You know, it's a Bill Wilsonism. You know, Bill Wilson is my favorite lush. This guy is fabulous. Have you ever read in the, it's in the 12 by 12, Bill Wilson has the finest definition of humility that I have ever seen in my life. He says, humility is the realization of who we really are and the willingness to become what we can be. That's in the chapter in the fifth step. And he spends the next two chapters complicating the living daylights out of that thing. He's my kind of lush. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, uh, I get done with this. Uh, it begins to dawn on me, this unmanageability in my life. Well, who do you think I was running from for 25 years? I don't want to look inside myself. I had a sponsor, Jay Levy, by the way, gives me a nice Jewish slant to my program, keeps religion out of it. Every Irish Catholic drunk needs a Jewish sponsor. Uh, but, but he, uh, this, this business of, of, uh, the unmanageability of my life, uh, I'm gonna look in here and I'm gonna find, oh, Jay and I used to, to trade inventories. And we would always procrastinate sharing them with each other and we both had enough to put the other one away forever. I wasn't afraid of Jay. That's afraid of me. I don't want to find out. I don't want to know what kind of cat lives in my cage. I just That's something that just scares the daylights out of me. So where's my Annie Likes? It has nothing to do with kissing a mule on the south end when he's facing north on the capital steps at high noon. That's not what it has to do with. It has to do with finding out who I really am. Because when I find myself, I will find deep within me that power greater than myself, that power that I can live by. The first thing that I remember, and it was years before I identified it, but at the bottom of my drinking, I'm doing things like alley catting, and uh, you know, I have uh, uh, child abuse. Uh, I have a lot of contempt for a salesman that doesn't work, uh, becoming everything that I despise. And there's a voice inside me that's absolutely screaming at me, saying, "What is going on? This is not what you're like. You are not like this. Why are you doing this? That voice to me is God. That's the God within me. That's, that's where I'm going to find this reality deep within myself. It's more than a conscience. Conscience went out the window a long time ago. It's this, this voice that's absolutely screaming at me. Okay, so anyway, I became willing, I took, I had to take my religion, tie it with a big green ribbon, put it on the shelf, and come down to the concept, God is everything or He is nothing and I know nothing about this. I heard some things that were right, I heard some things that were wrong, and I don't know which is which, and I probably invented some. And I can't sort the whole thing out, so I won't even try. I'm going to come down, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable, and there better be a God. God is everything or He's nothing. That's the catch-22 of this. Well, I'm powerless over alcohol, my life is unmanageable, and there is no God. I'm sorry, I can't buy that. Because I need a miracle and only a God can make a miracle. So I'm willing to believe that there is a God. And it's just like that. And I'm willing to believe a little bit more than this. A God that can restore me to sanity. And Now, the word sanus, the Latin word sanus, literally it means health. And when you talk about mental health, you call it sanity. And when you're talking about physical health, you call it sanitation. Okay, it's the same word. So, well, no, and the reason I'm saying that is because I need somebody to restore me to health in every area of my life. So, am I willing to believe that there is a God that will do this? Again, the the, the Jewish connection. I was listening one night to, I was out in Kansas and I was listening to the WGN radio out of Chicago. Sunday night, they had wonderful talk shows in those days. And there's a rabbi talking. And the rabbi says, there's three kinds of knowledge. He says, there is theory, which means I read it in a book or I took it in school. There is experience, which means I lived it and I know it. I learned it the hard way. And then he says, now I'm going to tell you about a third kind of knowledge and it's called faith. It is not human. Faith is a gift of God. So what am I going to do? I've got to come to believe and how am I going to do it? I've got to go and find a God that will give me a gift of faith. Which is kind of circular when you come right down to it. So I come up to to God as I understand him. And I say, he says, what are you doing here, you dirty, Jesuit, trained agnostic? And I say, I came to believe. He says, here's some faith. Get off the head trip. Go out and do something. And so I go out and do something and I've got a little bit of faith. Well, I'll tell you what I do with faith. I use it as fuel. See, I am an absolute expert at staying sober for 28 years. Faith is what will keep me sober for 29 and I don't have that. I can't generate that. You can't give it to me. I can't give it to me. It's a gift of God. The only way I'm going to get it is by reaching for it. By opening up. You've heard about honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I'm going to admit some stuff. First thing I'm going to admit as far as my drinking is concerned is that I'm powerless over alcohol. And then I'm going to go find a power that I can live by as opposed to dying. And then once I'm into this, then I'm going to make this, this decision. I'm going to take the life that I don't have. Surprisingly, if you're familiar with the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, When they tell you about writing an inventory, there's a peculiar little thing that they suggest you do. You write down all your resentments. Everybody that's ever screwed you over, you write them down on this inventory. And what you end up with is, and then you say, this is the guy, this is what he did, and it affected my self-esteem. It affected my personal relationships, my sex life, my ambitions, my pocketbook, my security. Six things. That's my life. So I, this is the thing, and this is what I don't have. I mean, I'm not turning this over because I'm noble. I'm turning it over because I ain't got it. That what am I turning over? Nothing. Except, as it was put to me, when you approach the third step, you take your whole stack of chips and you bet it on one number. That number is that God will do for me what I can't do for myself. That number is that God is a power that I can live by. That number is that uh, God will be my director. God will be my father. That is the, the you know, unconditional loving parent. I had a little trouble with fathers given the family history. Uh, God will be the, uh, the, the source of, of, uh, of everything. God will be my provider. God will be the principal. I'll be the agent. Principal agent has to do with power. I'm no longer lack of power is no longer my dilemma. I have a source of power to work with. Am I going to decide that? Am I going to decide? I can't carry it out. Don't get me wrong. I haven't got it done yet. But am I going to decide to do that? Yeah. What have I got to lose? You know, I'll come back and say, yabbit this and yabbit that. You know what a yabbit, yabbit's a fuzzy little creature. Comes out of his cage, he's got long ears and he bites you in the tail end. That's what a, that's what a yabbit is. So you wanna, you wanna keep the yabbit in his cage. There's also another fuzzy little animal without long ears. He's called a what and he'll come out and do the same thing. And so, you wanna watch them. You also wanna look out for phone leaks. They're kinda like a ferret, you know, long and thin. Same thing. Anyway, uh, I come to this decision and I'm going to decide that I will turn my will and my life over to care of God and immediately I'll say I can't have anything I want. Well, that's a lot of crap too. Because here's what I'm going to do. Remember I said I admitted I came to believe and I made a decision at this point. Okay, if you like abstract nouns, we're going to do honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Same thing. And in approaching this, I find that the reason why my life is unmanageable Again, going back to the book, it doesn't label it as unmanageability, but think about it a minute. It says, I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-pity, self-delusion, self-seeking. Well, you do not need a Ph.D. in psychology to figure out that that isn't going to get you a life. In fact, you see people like this. You get behind somebody, say you're at at the grocery store and you're in the six-item lane and somebody's got 12 items. Not the guy ahead of you, the guy ahead of the guy ahead of you. And the guy ahead of you starts coming unglued. Everybody looks at him, get a life, will you? But it's exactly those kind of driving things that keep me from getting a life because I'm like, I'm the guy ahead of you. That's the way I am. Okay, I'm, I'm, my problem, I'm the man that knew too much. I have never worked for an airline, but I know how it should be run. Uh, <laughs> I do not have a commercial driver's license, but I know how a semi should be driven on the interstate. And so on, you get the picture. Anyway, uh, so what, what I come down to, I look at this, And I'm writing this three-column novel that I got no life, and it's all these guys' fault. Joe Blow uh, told me I was a windbag, and that ruined my self-esteem. Well, yeah, because I got no self-esteem to begin with, so I'm blaming Joe Blow. And on down the line, so I got no life, and it's all these guys' fault. And it begins to dawn on me that maybe my reasoning is somewhat faulty. So it says, I will go back and say, not where San Andreas is my fault. That's not what the book says. Sometimes, yeah, it was a scam that backfired, and I know that. And sometimes, you know, I I I socked it to some guy, and he socked me back. But a lot of times, what's wrong is that, well, I, like my sponsor Jay used to tell me when I was having domestic difficulties, sobering up on an Al-Anon is a rotten thing to do. It changes the whole dynamic of the marriage. That that you touch on, it, you know, you've been you've been guilty all your life, and now all of a sudden I'm holy. <laughs> And that makes it a little, that makes me a little difficult to live with. So anyway, uh, what Jay told me this, he said, when, when we're having these things, she's doing this, she's doing that, she's doing the other thing, and Jay says, don't be so self-centered. She's doing it to you, she's just doing it. My self-centeredness is making me vulnerable to her behavior, because it's all about me. Uh, my nobility makes me vulnerable, because I'm so noble and everybody else in the world is so rotten. My my incredible knowledge makes me vulnerable to people of airlines, semis, etc. Uh, in other words, what, what's wrong with me that the world and its people are dominating me and that I can't ever seem to be content with anything that's going on and I think my way is the right way and no other way can possibly come into this. That's what's wrong. That's why I got no life. And when I actually get all that down on paper and I look at it, and I read it to somebody. Oh, and then there's a fear inventory, which is basically the same thing. Except that I notice that the way I get fears is by processing information I don't have. You know. <laughs> well, no, that isn't, that, isn't, that isn't unusual. Elkies are funny people. A lot of us are a little fuzzy about what's happening and a little clueless about what did happen. But we're all experts about what's going to happen.
1: <laughs>
0: so, anyway, I'm going to write all this stuff down. And when I read it to somebody that I respect, I'm going to feel like an idiot. Okay? And that is about as entirely ready as I ever get. So I am entirely ready to have God remove the defect of character. Oh my God, what an awful word that is. A defect of character. If you have a piece of crystal and you drop it on the floor, you've got broken glass to sweep up. But if you keep the piece of crystal intact, it has a flaw in it. Or if you take a truckload of instruments and they fall off the truck, because you don't know how to drive a semi, uh, it, it will make a crash. But if you take those instruments into the concert hall and they play a symphony on them and somebody blows a wrong note, there's a defect. So I maintain that a defect can only occur in something that is fundamentally good and beautiful. So the assumption is, if I have a defective character, I am fundamentally good and beautiful. I am a child of God. And there is a lot more ointment than what there is flies. And I can't, I don't want to lose sight of that. When the book invites me to review my day, it says I constructively review my day. The way I do this, I'm not saying it's the way to do it, but the way I do it, the first question I ask God in the evening is, what did I do today that was constructive? First of all, we'll get the fabric. Then we'll go looking for holes in it. And as a matter of fact, if I have a hole in the fabric, then the only way that that hole is going to get fixed is for somebody to make more fabric to put in that hole. Or if I have a shortcoming, let's say a 10-foot rug in a 12-foot room, I've got to find somebody to make that two feet of rug to fill up that room. And that's called creation. So when I have done reading this three-column novel, and by the way, there's a sex inventory in there too. I'm beginning to lose sight of that, I don't know why. I turned my sex life over to God and he confiscated it, but.
1: <laughs>
0: no, I've still got memories, although I have to admit that's starting to go. But anyway, the, uh, uh what I'm doing in the, in the sex life is not, I'm not in the sex inventory. I'm not really learning anything about sex or my sex life or anything like that. I'm learning how I use people. I'm learning how I lie to people. I'm learning how I hurt people. I'm learning how I don't know how to love. That's what I'm learning. And when I wrote that inventory, I went all the way back to my very earliest boy-girl relationships, many of which were quite legitimate, and I learned an awful lot about how it should be and how it could be. So, uh, this is not a beat-yourself-over-the-head process. But anyway, I will ask God to remove the defective character. But I use the word remove, and yet I start the prayer, my creator. I'm asking God to create because I believe that's what he does for a living. And my own personal belief is that nature, read God, abhors a vacuum. If I throw away selfishness, God will fill it with love because that's what he is. If I throw away dishonesty, God will fill it with wisdom and truth because that's what he is. It's the only thing he's got to fill it with. Is if I throw away resentment, God will fill it with acceptance and gratitude. And if I throw away fear, God will fill it with faith and courage. Now, without any, without, some of you probably got big degrees in psychology and some maybe even, even shrinks, even shrinks start with a PS. But anyway, uh, the fact of the matter is, which are the better principles to live on? Selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, or love, faith, courage, etc. Which are the better numbers to live on? This is what's wrong. Because what do I want to live on? My natural bent is to live on selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-pity, self-delusion, self-seeking. These are compulsions. I can't wish them away. The book tells me that I've got to have God's help. Now I'm talking about getting a life. So what happens? I go through this process. I admit, come to believe, and make a decision. And subtle things start to happen. I was 19 years sober. When I wrote the inventory that finally kind of got my marriage on the right track. Again, I go back to Jay. He told me about forgiveness. Nice, almost a Talmudic thing. In fact, I think maybe that's where he got it. But he says, forgiveness is canceling an account that is due. I'm not denying. I'm not saying it was my fault. I'm saying, yeah. Like my parents. They owed me. I'm never going to get it. I will cancel the account. And then it becomes an ongoing process after that. When my mind starts working on it. Yeah, but I decided to forget that. Or to forgive that. So I'll go on to something else from there. That this is, this is how I've learned to practice forgiveness. Tremendous thing in my life, because I can't dwell on this crap anymore. Uh, and by the way, that applies to me as well. So, we're going, uh, I, the defects have been removed, and now I gotta go clean up airplanes. Well, I have a list of persons that I have harmed. And it's a funny thing about that list, There, some of them are gonna be easy. I owe you ten bucks, here's your ten bucks, and then it's done. Am, uh some of them will prove to be difficult but those easy ones i think it's god's way of telling me which ones to make first and then along comes the difficult ones but by the time i get around to them they're kind of easy and then comes the impossible ones and by the time i get around to them they're difficult and one day i find out but here's what's funny about it when i make an amend i am turning that area of my life over to the care of god and whether I'm aware of it or not, he will be running it from there on in. When I made amends for an affair that I had had, when I made the decision not to make the amend, my relationships with women became trustworthy. Because it would have harmed this lady had I made the amend, and I was told not to, and I said, well what about the amend? He says, the decision completes the amend. And my relationships with women improved. All kinds of things like this have happened to me. All kinds of spiritual experiences, spiritual awakenings, all this kind of thing. These things are a dime a dozen. The problem is, if you don't nurture them, they have no value. They will just go away. If you continue this process, they will build a life and they will build it bigger and bigger and bigger. It's been my experience and I've had death to deal with. I've had this and that and the other thing. Uh, many things that I didn't like to deal with. But nothing bad has ever happened to me in sobriety. And I do not consider death bad because it's an inevitable consequence of life. I may not like it the way it is, but uh, I'll go a step further than that. The things that I was most afraid of, the things that did happen that I was most resistant to, without exception, I have come to understand that these were good things and that I am better off. And I'm not talking spiritually, I'm talking in my life totally. is better off because these things happen... And if these things had not happened, my life would be less for. That good job that I had when I sobered up, uh, I lost it 10 months sober. I've got a, I went to work my, my, I went to my sponsor and uh, he was the executive secretary of the Rocky Mountain Men's Apparel Club, which is an association of reps in the clothing business. And they're having the Western Wear Show and uh, I'm hanging signs for $3 an hour. I've been this big mover and shaker. Although at the end I was moving from stool to stool and shaking every morning, but that's another story. I still, I still had the image, you know, and in my own mind. And uh, he says, "You're tall. You can hang the signs for this." We get around to this one. He says, "Oh, don't hang that sign." He says, their rep left them and they owe me. I'll get you an interview. I went with that company. 18 months over to the day, and when that and and 17 or one month over, no, one month after having done an inventory in which I looked at my own self-hatred and my own self-sabotage. I'll share with you some of the reasons why my life remains unmanageable. Uh, this will come as a terrible shock for somebody that spent 25 years of his adult life trying to poison himself with alcohol. I t- I'm naturally a self-destructive person. And I'm sure I'm unique in the room that way. <laughs> my self-will cannot be trusted because in all of my self-will, there is a hidden agenda. Of self-destruction. Gradually, I'm getting a life. After that, there are three steps called 10, 11, and 12. The 10th step says we continue to take personal inventory. Now, whether you write this or whether you do it mentally and verbally, really the book, the the directions for working these steps. And remember, I said I was going to share my experience with working the steps. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me whether I call it a fourth step or a tenth step or whether I'm fifth stepping it or doing more tenth step. It's a numbers game. The important thing is admitting, I'm admitting coming to believe and making a decision regarding my behavior. And I'll go and admit this to somebody and I have exactly the same experience that I had in doing four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. People say they do the work once a year. I don't. When I have to go to the paper is when I have rationalized and got myself so confused I don't know whether I'm foot or horseback and I have to go to the paper to straighten it out. But if I keep current, see, I do the work every day. I do four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine every day, not every year. Also, I do an 11th step, which is basically, who am I? Who is God? What's our connection? Well, I'm Roger. I'm an alcoholic. My life is unmanageable. That's who I am. Who is God? Well, God is a power that I can live by. That's who God is. And what's our connection? I'm supposed to do his will because my will is self-destructive. You might gather I don't have a noble bone in my body. But I'm doing this because it's in my enlightened self-interest to do it. That's why. Because if I don't, I may, I always used to say, I may make it to age 70 and never get a life. Well, I'm, I'm pushing 70 real hard, but I'll tell you what, I've got a life. And it's incredible, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That surrender that I decided to do in the third step, To the degree that I have been able to implement that, I have had a spiritual awakening. Because of that, I have a message to carry. and I understand that. I'm very grateful for that. I'm especially honored to have been invited to carry the message to you folks here tonight. By the way, I love every one of you. The third thing is, I get to practice these principles in all my affairs. These principles. Love instead of selfishness. Wisdom and truth instead of dishonesty. Acceptance and gratitude instead of resentment. Faith and courage instead of fear. If that's what you want, there's a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Follow the instructions. You'll get it. Thank you.